welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 207th episode, our guest is Jonathan Molesic. Jonathan Molesic is a writer and former tenured college professor, sushi chef, and parking lot attendant. His essays have been recognized as notable in Best American Essays 2019 and 2020 and Best American Food Writing 2020, and have received special mention in the Pushcart Prize Anthology in 2019. His work has appeared in The New Republic, The New York Times Magazine, The Washington Post, America, Commonweal, Notre Dame Magazine, The Hedgehog Review, Chronicle of Higher Education, and elsewhere. He has been the recipient of major grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Louisville Institute. His first book, Secret Faith in the Public Square, won a forward Indies gold medal for the religion category in 2009. His next book, The End of Burnout, will be published by the University of California Press on Friday, December 10, 2021. He holds a Ph.D. from the University of Virginia and teaches writing at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And now on to the show. Yeah, my name is Jonathan Molesic. I am a writer living in Dallas, Texas, and the author of The End of Burnout. Yeah, and I'm uh, reading your book, as I mentioned uh, before we started recording, and uh, I wanted to uh, see if you could just kind of start where your book starts in that uh, you were teaching and, and you had your own experience with the burnout. So uh, if you could kind of just start there and kind of give paint the picture for people how you uh, encountered this topic in your own life. Yeah, exactly. I, I had been a, a college theology professor. And in fact, that had been my dream job for years. Um, I spent basically my entire 20s in graduate school preparing for this job. And then I got it. Uh, I got my dream job. And, uh, you know, things went well for several years. Um, And one of the topics I was interested in when I was teaching was kind of work as a moral and spiritual question. And so I designed a class called Why Work? Uh, I, you know, did research on this topic. And then at some point, I kind of became the thing I was studying. I became a dissatisfied, unhappy uh, American worker who could no longer explain to himself why he was working. Um, I found it harder and harder just to get out of bed in the morning. Um, I was showing up to work barely on time. Preparing for class became much more difficult. I would, I would be just racking my brain. Uh, you know, the night before I had to teach, just unable to think of how to teach this, some material that I had often taught several times before, but like it just, my brain just wasn't working. And after a couple of years of that, uh, I took a semester of unpaid leave uh, just to kind of clear my head and rest and hopefully rediscover why this had been my dream job. Uh, and so I, you know, I took a, a semester away from the college and uh, I came back to work and my five months of rest helped for about one week. And I was right back to where I had left off, just as miserable, um, 
you know, short temper, uh, difficulty planning, um, and just no, no desire to continue doing this job. Uh, and so, uh, fortunately my wife got a very good job offer in the Dallas area. And so when she signed her contract, I signed my letter of resignation and, um, in the months after that, I started to think about what had happened to me. And um, I started reading about burnouts and it made a lot of sense of my situation. I should say this was uh, almost six years ago that this happened. Uh, and at the time, you know, the, the public conversation about burnout was not at all what it is now. And so I was, I was diving into all the psychological literature and I discovered, you know, well, this, this is it. This, this phenomenon explains what happened to me and why I ended up hating my dream job. Mm -hmm. And so I just decided to keep researching it and to, to try to understand it for, for my own sake and for the sake of now, you know, millions of other people who uh, are going through something similar. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I, I also mentioned before we started, I was an elementary education major and uh, I am not a teacher now. Uh, and a lot of the friends I made while I was in school uh, for teaching are also not teachers anymore. So uh, I, this is a very common story that I've heard from other teachers. Now, do you think, I know you talk about this being a society-wide problem and I have absolutely no doubt it is, but do you think there is something intrinsic to teaching that is susceptible to this, especially? I think that, yeah, what makes teachers especially susceptible is that they're very caught in the, I don't know, I, the, the metaphor that just popped into my head is like, you know, the claws or the pincers uh, of burnout. Um, because teachers, well, the burnout is caused by uh, the, the gap between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. And so if you go into work, as most of us do, with pretty high ideals, uh, and if you go into your workplace uh, and the conditions don't support those ideals, then your likelihood of burning out is much greater. And I think teachers, teachers are, an, are an idealistic bunch. Uh, you know, teachers go in with a, a noble mission to educate, you know, young people. Um, but as we know, the conditions in which teachers labor often don't measure up to those ideals. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, it's always a battle to... Um, to fund education at just about every level. Uh, and, you know, the, the school districts and colleges and universities are often putting more and more pressure on their faculty. Salaries get frozen and, uh, you know, there are ever more administrative tasks and assessment tasks uh, that need to be done. And so it's, it's no surprise that teachers feel this, uh, have this strong experience of burnout. Mm -hmm. Well, and you also mentioned that a lot of your uh, classes that you were teaching were 
required classes that weren't in the majors of the people who the students that were taking it. So it wasn't like this was just something they had to take to graduate and you weren't really feeling the uh, uh, <laughs> the response, I guess, intellectually from from the students. And I'm sure that that has to figure into it a little bit, too, because, I mean, I definitely uh, had some classes when I was in school that I had to take to graduate that I, I wasn't wouldn't have probably occurred to me to to take on my own. So I definitely <laughs> understand that uh, that dynamic for sure. But right, right. exactly. You know, I um, so I taught theology uh, and my students, and, and it was a Catholic college, and so every student had to take theology. And the students, they just outright told me. I mean, I, I should caveat that by saying I had many wonderful students and mm -hmm. tremendous fond memories uh, of, you know, of working with many of them. But, you know, students would say outright, this class doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, this is only a core class. Why do you take it so seriously? Well, the reason I take it so seriously is I've devoted my entire life to it. And, you know, when you, and that's, again, that, those are my ideals. And, you know, the students, the, the people who are meant to benefit from my labor uh, did not share those ideals. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, there was almost no way I was going to get back what I felt I was putting in. Right. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I was an elementary school teacher and those kids had to be there by law. So it wasn't, right. like, <laughs> it wasn't like they were there by choice either. So I, I definitely understand that dynamic. Um, but, you know, I, I do think it's interesting when we talk about burnout that, like you mentioned in the book, it's not it's, it's hard to define and our definitions of a champ change over the time periods that we're talking about in history. So I was wondering if you could walk through a little bit of the history of how people even define burnout, because it seems like uh, it's a pretty unsigned. I mean, it just it's changed so much what we even mean by that or what terms it goes by over the years. Right. Yeah. I mean, burnout is in the in the scheme of uh, human history. Burnout is a very new phenomenon. Uh, it the the term got started being used in relation to work kind of informally in the 1960s. Uh, there are some reports in the late 1960s of uh, workers, uh, in particular, I want to say you know, social workers and other people in sort of the human services profession, using that term to describe the emotional toll that their work was taking on them. But then it was in the mid-1970s, so 1973-74, that psychologists got a hold of the term and started theorizing it. And the history of that, uh, of their sort of discovery, in a sense, of burnout is, to me, I think, really interesting. Um, it was a, it's a simultaneous discovery by two psychologists working totally independently on opposite sides of the United States and coming to very similar diagnoses and definitions of this problem of burnout. Um, so you had Herbert, Herbert Freudenberger, who was a clinical psychologist in New York City, uh, working at a free clinic uh, in, uh, well, that was, it was called the St. Mark's Free Clinic uh, in, of New York's East Village, and Christina Maslach, 
a research psychologist working in the psychology department, uh, first at Stanford University and then uh, UC Berkeley. And they both identified this term almost at the exact same time. And they, they described it in similar, but, but sort of complementary ways. Um, Freudenberger really emphasized the ideals. You know, he looks at these free clinic volunteers as idealistic workers who are faced with the massive need of the people they're trying to serve and nothing they do can, you know, can meet that need ultimately. And, you know, so they, uh, they have all kinds of symptoms that, that Freudenberger identifies as burnout. And then Maslach on the West Coast uh, really focuses on the working conditions of people in human services professions. So counselors, social workers, poverty attorneys, uh, and, and a few others. And eventually Maslach identifies the three main components of burnout, of exhaustion, cynicism, or the kind of more technical term she sometimes uses, depersonalization. So the idea that you, you, you see your students as problems uh, rather than as people, or you, you see your coworkers uh, as, as problems or something like that. Uh, and the third component is a reduced sense of effectiveness at work. So those three things, exhaustion, cynicism, and ineffectiveness are the classic psychological definition of burnout. Mm-hmm. But in the culture at large, we talk about burnout in much looser terms than that. Um, I, you know, psychologists themselves, unfortunately, don't all uh, agree with each other on this definition. Um, and the general public, has, there's virtually no agreement. Um, and a big reason that I wrote the book was to kind of set our public conversation about burnout on a direction where we can be a lot more precise and we can say, okay, this is burnout. Uh, this is clinical depression, which is, you know, there's quite a bit of overlap perhaps between burnout and clinical depression, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, and this is, you know, just a worker who needs an extra day off or something like that. Um, not every time you're, you're tired from work, are you burned out? And sometimes if you, if you think you're burned out um, and you settle on that as a, as a definition without, you know, kind of looking into what it means, um, that self-diagnosis of burnout is sometimes concealing uh, clinical depression, which is often much more serious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I was going to ask about how you can tell the difference between because a lot of these terms you're talking about sound close to one another, but I guess like there's no blood test for it. So it it might be kind of an overlapping thing too of depression, exhaustion, you know, but but you're you're kind of saying that this is distinct from some of those things where it's an I guess exhaustion is an element you're saying of of burnout, right? Right. Right. Yeah. The, the kind of exhaustion that is characteristic of burnout is more than the ordinary tiredness mm-hmm. that you might feel at the end of 
a difficult week or at the end of a project or the end of a semester or something like that. In my case, my exhaustion did not improve after five months of rest. Uh, the only thing that ended my exhaustion was quitting my job. And I think that's also why clinical depression is not the right description for what happened to me, at least. Um, because as soon as I quit, well, I mean, it took a little time to kind of, um, you know, re remake my um, self-understanding as a worker and, and embark on a new career. But, you know, once I left the job, I stopped feeling quite so bad. Uh, the, the problem was you know, localized in my work. And that's not how clinical depression is. Like it just stays with you. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not just work related. Mm -hmm. I do wonder, and this kind of made me think of the way we think of marriage nowadays, you know, it's like people nowadays expect to marry for love. Like that's the expectation of when we look for a partner I don't, it wasn't that way always. And I think for most of the history of marriage, it was more of like a business arrangement, if anything, a way to keep, you know, land in the family or some, you know, dowry. And it's more of a transactional thing. And only recently have we started to even think of it as uh, related to romance and love and, and genuine affection and, and anything more than just a, a deal we make. Uh, and I wonder if you think of the kind of change we've had in work the same way because it's like I, I don't know that people maybe even expected to be fulfilled by their jobs it's like for the most part back in the day and maybe this is a more of a modern phenomenon that we expect to I mean I'm glad it's that way I, I love my wife and I'm glad I have a job I'm interested in but I'm just saying like like I expect to have those things now I don't I don't expect anything else but maybe you know our expectations were different you know as a society back you know a while back what do you think yeah, I think that's totally true, you know, not only about marriage, but also about work. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that we we sometimes talk about marriage as work, too. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, yeah, the, in both cases, there are our, our ideals are so much higher than they were in the past. And the ideal of work as a as a place of not just economic productivity, but of, um, you know, of identity formation and self-expression and a sense of transcendence is also, is, is about as, uh, as old as the, the concept of burnout. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Betty Friedan um, writing the, the feminine mystique in 19... 60 or so, um, argued that, you know, the, this problem that has no name that women uh, in the United States were experiencing. And she was looking, you know, primarily at women who were graduates of elite colleges. So these are women who had pretty high ideals for themselves. And they, um, but they, they had this kind of nameless problem um, of fulfillment. And Friedan argued that in the post-war United States, we had solved the problem of productivity. And 
now work became not primarily a question of how productive are you, but how, um, you know, how, how can you use your work to express who you are? And it's, it's shortly after that change in mindset. And I think Friedan is not just kind of, you know, <laughs> like she didn't, uh, she didn't just inaugurate this mindset, but was reacting to a shifting mindset. Soon after that change in mindset, that expectation that work is not just about productivity, but is about meaning, this problem of burnout appears when our ideals become higher and higher. And then beginning in the 1970s, the conditions of work got worse and worse for the typical American worker. Mm -hmm. Wages stagnated, um, uh, work uh, became more precarious. Um, it was, you know, it inaugurated the era of mass layoffs. And so burnout is this response. And, and our, our, what I call our burnout culture is a culture-wide response to the experience of ever-growing ideals for work and diminishing a diminishing reality of that work. Yeah, that definitely leads into what I was going to ask you about next, because it just seems like every time I've been at a job and then there was a job alongside my job that got eliminated, it wasn't like someone else was going to do that job. It was just now we're all going to do this job, <laughs> like like all the people left are now just going to just absorb this into your other job that you were already doing. <laughs> like, it's always been like that, no matter what job I've, I've been to, like, if that happens, like, you're just, that's yeah, now it's your problem. <laughs> and it's like, you're still expected to do the same work you did before, but now just this too. And I feel like with that shift you talk about, and uh, especially with the gig economy and uh, the rise of temps and contractors and, more um, transient types of work uh, on the periphery, that's that's definitely just become the case for all workers. I feel like that's just a society-wide thing we've, we've had to deal with all over. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's, you know, and, yeah, and it's, it's one that's been well-documented by, um, you know, by a lot of historians and economists lately that we're in this, this era of, uh, of ever-growing expectations on workers, but also um, ever less security for them. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, if you think of like my grandparents' generation, it's like you had one job for 40 or 50 years and then you retired and then that was it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can, I can barely fit, you know, and I, I've had a, a, a I feel like a, a, a good, I, I, I'm not saying this as someone who thinks I had a bad career but i can barely fit all the jobs i've had on one one sheet for my resume you know what i mean like it's it's hard to calculate the number of things i've i've done and the places i've been and, and stuff and i i just i don't think it it was that way for most people back in the day it's just like well the factory that makes uh you know candles or whatever in town there's hiring so that's where you'll be working now so just enjoy it <laughs> yeah like, uh, yeah my know. yeah uh my maternal grandfather worked uh, I think he worked for the same company his entire life. He wow. worked, um, yeah, he, he worked for uh, American Standard, um, 
uh, American Standard Radiator Company in Buffalo, New York. Mm. Um, you know, he was a union steward. He mm-hmm. was, you know, uh, he worked in quality control and I, he must have worked. I mean, he did 40 years, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he, exactly. you know, he started when he was he was about, I think, 16. So, well, I'm, I'm yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up unions because I do think the decline in organized labor in general is probably had something to do with everything we're talking about. Right. I mean, if you have union protections or you know, you don't have these right to work laws that they have in, in many states. Uh, you know, I, I think that kind of thing is not as big of an issue, but obviously that hasn't been the case for the last couple of decades, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, the the advent or at least the, the uh, theorization of burnout in the mid-70s coincides with the the height of labor power in the mm-hmm. United States, um, you know, it was in the, the early seventies and this is really well documented by the historian Jefferson Cowie uh, in a book called Staying Alive. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the workers on, uh, on the auto lines were kind of agitating. They didn't even just want better pay. They wanted sort of more interesting conditions they you know they wanted the the work to be kind of reorganized so they had more autonomy um and you know that was that was the height of their power and then you know the kind of at the end of the 70s uh, really like in 1981 with the air uh, the air traffic controllers strike um the first demand uh, or I guess it was the first complaint that the the air traffic controllers listed was burnout, mm-hmm. um, and you know that strike, of course, was was broken uh, by Ronald Reagan, and that was kind of like the, you know the, you know the the real downfall uh, of so much labor power in the United mm-hmm. States, and it has only fallen further uh, since then, with, with you know maybe some hopeful signs in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I just feel like this ethic of working yourself to the bone is so ingrained in people. And it's just like this idea of if you don't produce, you shouldn't be allowed to eat or so. it's just a very like uh, uh, puritanical, I guess would be the word. I don't I don't even know how to describe it, but it's just there's this this mentality that it's like it's good to be like just totally exhausted and and if you're burned out well good you're burned out you should be burned out you know what i mean like it's it's just a very like it's a very harsh way to look at things and i just always have I've kind of bristled at that idea uh but that's that's definitely a, an ethic that i think is, is very ingrained in, in many people's uh, psyche for sure definitely yeah i mean this is when burnout can be kind of a badge of honor Right. Exactly. And this, I think, is part of the problem of the definition of burnout uh, is that in the absence of a really good definition, then, you know, by saying that you're burned out and you are the only one who gets to say if you're burned out or not, Mm -hmm. then you're kind, it's kind of a brag, you know, you're kind of saying, I am an ideal worker in this work obsessed culture. You know, I have, I work so hard that I have broken myself in some way, mm-hmm. but 
you know, nevertheless, like the hustle never stops or something like that. And, you know, that kind of approach to burnout, um, I think, you know, need, needs to be kind of examined more carefully. And I think that, you know, if we had a clearer sense of what burnout really is, then we could take a step toward breaking, breaking open that notion that, you know, hard work is, you know, the supreme value and, and the supreme demonstration of, of our own value as people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, just, uh, you know, going to your book though, um, what did you find on, on the flip side of this? Because you obviously, you, you've laid out the problem very well, um, but you were also kind of looking for, for answers. So where did you go to look for answers of how to, to fix this problem? Yeah, I needed to, to look for answers for how to fix the problem in, in some unusual places. Um, you know, because the, the idea of, you know, of the work ethic um, as, as our supreme measure of value is so pervasive in American culture, you know, I didn't think I was going to find it in, in a typical company or something like that. Um, and so the first place I went looking was in uh, a Benedictine monastery uh, at, the, at the end of a 13-mile dirt road uh, in the New Mexico desert, where this community of about 60 monks, um, they live as much off the grid as they can. Uh, you know, they generate their own electricity, for instance. Um, they don't have, you know, telephone wires to, um, to their, their monastery. Um, and they devote their lives primarily to prayer. So they spend about six hours a day in communal prayer and, you know, a couple extra hours in private prayer. Like everyone, they have to work to sustain themselves but they keep work within pretty strict limits. Uh, and so they, they work for only about three hours a day, uh, six days a week. And when the bell rings, ending the work period, uh, they have to drop what they're doing and go to the chapel and gather together for you know, another period of communal prayer. Uh, um, and I saw in that monastery uh you know a, another approach it's 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 a very different value system than what we practice in 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 what the monks call the world <laughs> um and you know i i don't think that we all need to you know go off the grid and become monks and you know pray six hours a day or, or anything like that but i saw the the monks approach to work as a, a kind of limit case for what, what a human, what a good human life could be like if you tried to limit work to just a few hours and you put something else as more important than it. Um, and if, if the way we live now is the limit case in the other direction, then well, we need to think about ways that we can, 
you know, move more in the direction or, or find, uh, move more in the direction of the monks or, or find other alternatives um, that, you know, can, can put priority on something other than our labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, like I was mentioning before uh, we started recording, but uh, I do think that the pandemic has really exacerbated a lot of these problems because there is no um, lines anymore. It doesn't seem, you know, when you're working from home, you're, you're, you're working from home, you're, you're living at work. It's at the, the hours, they just bleed into each other and, and there's no uh, you know, there's, there's no clear lines about where work stops and where your life begins. It just seems like all one big hustle. So I, I do think having that, the ability to put work here and then put something else, uh, you know, over here is, is probably helpful, I would imagine. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the, the pandemic has made, well, it's made so many problems worse. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a big one because exactly like you, you described, that there just isn't a boundary mm-hmm. uh, between work and the rest of your life. And some of the alternatives that we've been talking about already are, uh, you know, enforcing that boundary is a big part of it. You know, a union contract sets boundaries. Right. Um, you know, having to do your work at the American standard plant was a boundary for my grandfather. Right. Um, you know, he couldn't do his work at home. Nope. Um, and you know, in, at the monastery, the boundary is the absolute obligation, uh, to convene in the chapel for prayer. And, you know, they don't have a factory whistle. They have the chapel bell. You hear the chapel bell. It's like, okay, well, Mm-hmm. it's time to to change and, and do this other thing um and you know we yeah like you said the without any boundaries um we're just you know that much more well we're that much more susceptible to our work simply becoming our life mm. well especially with these like you talk about like these gig worker jobs i mean they're always like pushing them to do you know one more like uber or the you know the uh what the grocery delivery one i forget the name but yeah it's like all all these ones uh that just you know hey come on one more thing you know and it's like <laughs> no i want to go home <laughs> like <laughs> it's like i i i'm live my car is i get around but i'm also making money in it and it's like i'm not actually an employee <laughs> also that's the other thing it's like these these ride sharing services you're not actually an employee you're you're also a customer and it's like what <laughs> so... yeah exactly i mean it's uh you know the 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 ride sharing and other, you know, kind of gig work mm-hmm. platforms, uh, they, they don't allow for limits. Uh, and they're, and, you know, those workers, right. I mean, the, the, their legal status um, helps to make it harder for them to set limits. Oh yeah. Um, no, for sure. Um, I was wondering if, in, if in your solutions, you thought that you universal basic income was part of the answer. Cause I'm, I'm convinced that that's that got to be one of the solutions. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, and the the reason that I see it as you know, I don't, I wouldn't say it's the only no, um, no. you know, answer, but it's it's a big part of it. And the reason is that it can enable a you know a decent 
life uh, without having to to sell your labor on the market, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's founded on a notion of universal human dignity. Um, every single one of us, uh, you know, your your children, um, you know, if they're school age, then they're not working, uh, and they have dignity. They mm-hmm. have, you know, every bit as much worth as anyone else. And yet somehow we, we don't accord people that same dignity once they, they become of working age, unless they're working for pay, mm-hmm. basically. You know, like you, if you want to hold your head up uh, as a, a good contributor to American society, then you have to have a job, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think that that's, that's false. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, we have a dignity. Yeah. Um, we, ha- we, were, we were born with, uh, with uh, inalienable human dignity, and we carry that with us whether we work or not. And, you know, a basic income is the, the sort of economic acknowledgement of that fact, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And we do seem to be moving slowly towards that, although I, I think we have a long way to go before we actually would, would get there um, with the child tax credit. I think that's a, that's a good start. I don't think it's, it's nearly enough to get, get it all the way there, but I think it's, it's starting to move people in the right direction. And you know, honestly, I wouldn't even think this is necessary if, like you were saying before, like in the se- starting in the 70s, where you know, wages never went up, and then everything else went up. And it's like, if you adjust for inflation, the people have been making roughly the same, uh, you know, as they were in the seventies, uh, you know, and it's it, like, you've got CEO profits more detached from regular workers and inflation and everything else. And there's still <laughs> places that you have, you can pay someone $2 an hour with tips uh, to work a job. And it's just like, are, what world are you living in? <laughs> like, this, this is not enough. Like this, even if you have a job and that's the one thing I, I keep getting frustrated about. It's like all these people are all oh, these people that don't want to work. It's like, well, you don't want to pay people. Like who can live on this amount of money? Like, like who, who, what are you, what are you saying? So. Yeah. And you know, so even though like the pandemic made so many things related to our work worse, there are actually, I think, also some glimmers of hope mm-hmm. in the experience that some people had, especially early in the pandemic. I mean, of course, we had no idea it was going to go on quite as long as it has um, in you know March and April of 2020. But you know, one of the the policies that was very quickly passed was this $600 a week unemployment bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this supplement to, to um, state unemployment uh, insurance. And that looks a little bit like a basic income, <laughs> you know, from mm-hmm. the right angle. Uh, and it's at a, a living wage. You know, many workers ended up making a little more mm-hmm. um, on that, you know, that $600 a week um, unemployment supplement than they did uh, before. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly how to read the, you know, the, the conditions that we're calling the great resignation. But 
you know, workers have many people, millions of people just had this experience of making a decent living without having to work at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that memory is fresh. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, like you say, I mean, I think that that helps to boost their bargaining power and can say, you know, things don't have to be the, the way they were before. Mm-hmm. We can try something different. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting book. Uh, I definitely suggest people should read it. Um, yeah, thank I, you. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm very enjoying it very much. Uh, one, uh, one thing I do ask always here towards the end is uh, what music have you been listening to lately? Oh, gosh, lately? Um... I, so I am, one of my uh, hobbies is cycling uh, and I listen to music a lot. I listen to podcasts uh, a lot while I'm cycling. Um, When I'm not listening to music, I've, or sorry, when I'm not listening to podcasts, I've been, I've been listening to a lot of Neil Young lately. Nice, I love you. um, Oh yeah. Um, And like what, well, like what, I don't know, what, what Neil Young do you, which is your favorite Neil Young, I guess. Oh boy. I like I like the early stuff. Uh yeah. down down by the river and uh that that early era. Um yeah. Harvest Moon. Yeah, I like the 70 early 70s era, mm-hmm. I think. But I love I love him with Crazy Horse too. So I'm not yeah, you know, I love that stuff too. It's it's hard to say. He's one of my favorite guitar players too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I um he gets mentioned uh in the book. I actually don't quote you know the line it's better to burn out uh than to fade away which which you <laughs> that know was too obvious i guess <laughs> right. um but it's in um ambulance blues yeah uh which was i think in 74 there's a line um all along the navajo trail burnout stubbed their toes on garbage pails and so like i think neil young was kind of picking up on the same thing in the culture that Freudenberger and Maslach were picking up on. Um, you know, Dylan has a line also in um, what song? Shelter from the Storm. I was mm-hmm. burned out from exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, also, I think, 1974 um, recording. Anyway, Neil Young, uh, very good uh, for thinking about burnout. But yeah, lately I've been, I've been listening to uh, like late eighties, early nineties, Neil Young. Wow. Um, okay. because he's like on, um, you know, ragged glory and, um, freedom, um, harvest moon. Like he's kind of my age. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in his mid forties there. And what I love is that, you know, he, he just keeps going, you know, um, he's a kind of a testament that, you know, you, you're not washed up <laughs> once you're, <laughs> once you're in middle age, um, you know, you can, you can still do great things. Uh, and, and I kind of take some inspiration from that. Yeah. He, uh, I'm trying to think what album he did a couple of years ago that I loved with them. Oh, I think it was Americana. Have you heard that mm-hmm. one? No, oh. I haven't. Uh, it's it's all like old timey folk songs, but he just like he just bashes through them with Crazy Horse, and it's awesome. Oh, wow. Like he's got Oh Susanna, Clementine, <laughs> This Land Is Your Land. It's like all these old timey folk songs, but it's like 
with with crazy horse so they're 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 going nuts but it's wow. it's a fun album i would i would definitely check it out all right yeah um, i gotta listen to that on yeah. my next bike ride oh yeah for sure but um well hey thanks so much for uh taking all this time this evening i'm glad we could finally got it worked out uh with yeah. the technical issues but um yeah uh you're welcome to come back anytime uh hope i didn't burn you out no 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 yeah it was great <laughs> talking with you rob yeah thanks yeah. so much for having me on cool well, have a good rest of your night i'll talk to you soon Thanks, yeah, you too. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, 
Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.